Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Flint, and uh, James called me Friday or texted me and said, I've got a bad ear infection. Can you fill in? I said, sure. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 11, this morning. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James, just so you know. So we're just going to read the first four verses, and out of respect for God's word, would you please stand while I read? Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for this time that we can come together as believers in your Son to worship you, to take your word in, to be fed, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be challenged, Father. I pray you bless this time that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would give me the words to say, that you would give uh, the listeners hearts and ears to hear. I pray for James that you lay your healing hand on him and restore him to health and bring him back here next Sunday. Thank you for James and his ministry and his work here that you're doing through him and through Tamara and through everyone who's involved in this body. Please bless them, Father. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. It says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Think of the things that the disciples of Christ saw as they walked with him for three and a half years. They saw his miracles. They heard his sermons and his teachings. Uh, they heard him teach like no man had ever taught before. They saw his very witness as the light of the world. But when one of his disciples came to Jesus to ask him for instruction, they didn't ask, or he didn't ask, Lord, teach us to do miracles. Lord, Teach us how you teach, how you preach. Lord, teach us how to be better witnesses like you are. No, the question they asked the Lord for instruction on was, Jesus, teach us how to pray. How to pray. Prayer is a great mystery. And it's a great work that Christians need to be engaged in. It's part of the life of discipleship. You know, and that word discipleship is the word discipline, and that's a word that most of us don't care for. Discipline, self-discipline. But connecting prayer to the word discipline is quite right because prayer can be hard work at times. And there are times when it's easy and moving, and then there are times where you feel like you're not getting above the ceiling. And I, quite frankly, don't understand why there are times when you think you touch the hem of the garment, as Haddon Robinson said, or other times you feel like you're just praying into the wind. I think God at times 
makes it seem like we have to strive after him more as a matter of faith. But to be honest, prayer done in a consistent and an effective way is work. It is work. But it's very important in the life of a believer and it's extremely important in the life of a church. Prayer should never be our last resort. Prayer should be our first line of defense and prayer should be the first step we take in any type of spiritual offensive we're going to mount. Look again at verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. We know from the scriptures that Jesus made a habit of praying. It was a priority to him. He would go away, get by himself to pray to his Father in heaven. And it should be that way for us too. Jesus had been praying and evidently the disciples or this one disciple was listening in. I would love to have heard Jesus pray. I would love to have heard him teach in person. Um, but he heard him pray. And when he was finished, this disciple asked Jesus, Jesus, John taught his disciples, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Would you please teach us to pray? You know, this is the only time in the Gospels where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. I find that interesting. And they, teach, they ask him to teach him how to pray, which makes this a very important answer. This unknown disciple did not ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us the theory of prayer. Jesus, would you talk about the theology behind prayer, the great mystery of how our will and God's will and our faith and God's actions, would you please explain this great mystery to us? This disciple and the others, they wanted to know how do we pray? He wasn't asking for a technique or a system. He wasn't asking Jesus, teach us an art form or a ritual to follow. Teach us how to get what we want. He wasn't asking that. No, he simply said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray the way you pray, how you pray. He must have prayed differently than any man, obviously, that they had ever heard before. He must have expressed an intimacy with the Father that they desired, they wanted. They heard Jesus pray, and they were like, I'd like to pray like that. Have you ever heard someone pray and think, man, I wish I could pray like that? I have. We'll multiply that by 10,000, what it must have been like to hear Jesus pray. Before I go any further, I would like to remind you and me that even today, even today, Jesus prays for you. In Romans 8, 34, it says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's a wonderful thing to think of, of Christ interceding for us today. So evidently, John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray. And while John's teaching was undoubtedly good, Christ's teaching on the subject would be undoubtedly superior. Evidently, John the Baptist was a man of prayer. And to be a great servant of God, to be used by God greatly, you're going to have to be a man or a woman of prayer. It takes work, but you cannot be effective for God in his kingdom without time spent alone with God praying. To be a great servant of God, you've got to be a man or a woman of prayer. 
And prayer is so important in the life of an individual believer, in the life of a church. It's really the neglected discipline, but it's so vital to us. So Jesus here in these, next, these few verses is going to give us an outline. And I imagine everybody in this room has, heard, has read this many times, has heard this taught on. So don't expect any type of like, ah, moment for me. We're going to have a reminder session this morning of kind of what prayer is about. It was, the, not, the, it was not the intention of Jesus when he gave this, this teaching. And it's very similar to the prayer in Matthew during the Sermon on the Mount. It was not his intention for Jesus to say, hey, when you pray, pray these words specifically. Now, if you want to pray this, that's something wrong with that. I'm not saying you should never say this as a prayer. But more or less, this is not the Lord's prayer as we think of it. It's the disciples' prayer. And it's an outline. It's an idea. Like when you come to pray, have these ideas in your mind of how you should approach Father, our Father. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. When you talk to God, and we're going to talk about this more, you should come to him as a loving father, as a loving father. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, if he is your savior, then he is your father. And he wants you to talk to him as you would your father. He does not want nor need to hear a bunch of these and thous and thys. Now, I grew up when the King James Bible was the Bible. Uh, that's what people read. And I'm, I like the King James. I don't understand the King James. The new King James is a little easier for me. But there's a lot of these and thous and thys, and somehow we got it in our minds that when we prayed to God, my dad was great about the thou, Lord, thee, thy. God's not impressed. He's not impressed by that. He's not impressed by big words, and he's certainly not impressed by long prayers. In fact, he taught, Jesus taught about that, didn't he? About they, the, the, the heathens pray and re, repetitively repay and pray and pray and pray, thinking, I'm going to get through. I'm probably going to be, I'm going to sidetrack for a second, tell you a story about prayer. So I was flipping through the channels one day at home, and it, there's a Catholic channel. And I was watching these nuns uh, pray through the rosary bees and the Hail Marys, and I was going, <laughs> vain repetition, <laughs> heathens, vain repetition. I, I was very spiritual as I sat there watching them for five minutes, judging them. <laughs> so the next morning or next afternoon, I don't remember which it was, but I was praying, I was in my room, I was praying, I spent time with the Lord, and I was praying, and the Lord just said, by the way, you know you pretty much say the same words to me every single time you pray. And just conviction. The Lord just spoke to me very lovingly and said, you judge them for what you do. Ain't that always the way it seems like? Anyways, I digress. Prayer is a conversation. It's a conversation. Be honest when you come before God. He knows everything about you anyways. You, you can't get something by on God. If you're struggling with something in your life, if you're angry about something, if you're hurt about something, if you're scared about something, you don't have to impress God and make him think you're not. He knows. So be honest. You don't need to sound all spiritual and pious when you pray. You need to be real with God. He responds to real people giving him a real petition. So here's the outline, verse 2. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, when you start off your prayer, acknowledge who it is you're talking to. Your father, your Abba father, or your daddy is what, how we would say it. Not in, that's not, you know, there's a song, who's your daddy? That's not what I was talking about. It's, a, it's a, an endearment, a loving endearment. He's your father. He's your dad. God is your father this morning by right of at least 10 things that I came up yesterday, and I'm sure there's many more. First of all, he's your father because he created you. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and then Psalm 139, 13 through 14. He's your father because he sustains you and he cares for you. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. He's your father because he has redeemed you from the curse of sin and of the law. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. He's your father because he's adopted you. Romans 8, 15. He's your father because he keeps you in the family. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He's your father because he blesses you with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 3. He's your father because he knows you intimately down to how many hairs are on your head. Matthew 10, 30. Dan, he knows the little. He loves you, he's your father, because he loves you with a love that is truly amazing. John 3, 16 says it best. He loves you because he knows how to give you good things and he wants to. Luke 10, or Luke 11, 10 through 13. He's your father because he knows how to discipline you perfectly. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. He's your father for many reasons. But primarily, he's your father because you put your faith in Christ and he has adopted you. He has adopted you. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are a child of God. Think about that for just a second. It's none of my notes. This is free. We are dust. We are dust. That when we die, we're going to go back to dust. But we have been elevated through adoption to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ and to be called sons and daughters of God. That is mind-boggling. That is mind-boggling that you and I have been elevated to that position. I think of the angels. You know, they had their rebellion, but the, the two-thirds that stayed, when God tells an angel, go, the angel goes. When God says to an angel, say this to Mary, the angel says that to Mary. There's no debate. There's no argument. And then he has us. And the angels watch me, and they say, boy, that guy is something else. I know God says do this, and I see Flint do that. I know God says don't do this, and I see Flint do the opposite. And he's going to judge us? I don't actually think that, but that's the truth. Such is the grace of God, and such is your position in Christ, that you and I have been elevated to be sons and daughters of God. So when you start off your prayer, Jesus says, acknowledge that God is your Father, your loving and faithful 
Father. He really is your Father. That is how Jesus talked to his Heavenly Father. He called him Father. The idea that because of our relationship with Christ that we can address God Almighty, the creator of the universe, as Father is truly an amazing thing to me, especially when I consider who I am apart from Christ and what I am apart from Christ. And the fact that he says, call me Father, and I can call him Father, and he really is my dad. When you pray, Jesus says, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. After we address him and acknowledge who it is we're talking to, our Father, we must always acknowledge that there is a boundary between us and him. While we should never fear God in the sense of condemnation and judgment, we also know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And respect for who God is and what God is is very appropriate. He's not your buddy. He's not the big guy in the sky. He's not an old man on a cloud. Our Father, who art in heaven. Jesus says, when you pray, call him Father, but acknowledge who he is and where he is. Now, God is everywhere. We know that. But Jesus points us to the fact that he is in heaven in our prayer. As we're praying, we're to think of him as in heaven. Why is that? Because his, his place in heaven establishes his position, his sovereignty, his rule over all things. To acknowledge as God as our Father is to acknowledge our relationship. Who art in heaven is to acknowledge you are the God Almighty who created all things, who was and is and will ever be. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are eternal. You are infinite. And as, I can't remember the guys who sings this, he says, God is God and I am not. Stephen Curtis Chabot. That's because God is God and I am not. That, those are, you know, those words are simple, but I will tell you they are profound. The admission that God is God and I am not. There's so much in that, I don't have time to go into that, but that is the way we approach God. We start by establishing who it is we're talking to and our relationship to him, our Father in heaven. Our Father, you are God and there is none like you. Our Father, you love me, and you are holy. We engage, we start off by acknowledging who he is, and we start off when we engage, when we engage in prayer with a proper attitude of where God is and what God is and who God is and all that those things imply. And you should come to God with great boldness or confidence because of Christ, not because of you, because you're in Christ, but you come to him with great humility, knowing who he is. So he goes on, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then he says, your, my version, some of these don't have it, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge who we're talking to. We acknowledge the boundary, the difference between him and I, 
And then we establish an appropriate posture before God as we pray. He says, hallowed be your name. What does it mean when you say, God, hallowed, holy be your name? Your name, Yahweh. Your name, hallowed is your name. This is an expression of a desire on the part of the person praying that there would be a universal esteem, a universal value placed on the Father's name and on the Father's person. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, this would be worship. Okay? If you want to say when you pray, hallowed be your name, fine. But this is what he's saying here is when you come to God, acknowledge who he is, acknowledge the, the, the boundaries between you and him of what he is, and then, and then worship him. However the Spirit moves you to worship him. It can be in a hundred different ways. You, maybe you want to pray a, one of the Psalms to him. Or I'm not saying you have to say, hallowed be your name. Jesus is, God, Jesus is saying, look, when you pray to God, pray, your name is holy, and I want everyone to, to understand your name is holy. Then he says, your kingdom come. This is an expression of a longing. This would be especially applicable to the Jewish people that he was talking to, but it applies to us too. This is a longing for God's kingdom, for his authority to appear on earth. As we see this world go upside down, and it seems like it just gets worse and worse and worse, a believer in Christ starts thinking, God, your kingdom, please come. I understand now, I never, you know, Lot gets a really kind of a bum rap sometimes, and he shouldn't have gone to the plains, and he shouldn't have stayed in the cities, he should have done different, okay? But he settled there. And it says he was bothered by the stuff he saw, and I used to read that and just gloss over it, and now I think, man, I feel like I'm Lot. It's like, I'm stuck in the twilight zone, I, I didn't choose to live here or in this time, but I'm here and there it is, and it's like, I'm bothered by it. God, I would really be praying, your kingdom come. And then he says, your, pray this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what is that? That's an expression, an acknowledgement that what God wants and, and what God desires is right. It's, it's, it's a humbling saying, God, I may not understand it. I may not like this, but your will be done. Your will. I'm going to bow to the fact that you're God. You know everything. You're, you have all the knowledge. I'm going to bow before you, and I'm going to worship you. Your will be done. That whatever you want is right, and it should happen. So when we come to God in prayer, we, we acknowledge who it is we're talking to, our Father, we establish that there is an appropriate boundary between us and the Father. He is in heaven, heaven and he's sovereign over all. Then we establish an appropriate spiritual posture or attitude towards God. We express reverence for his name and for all that the name of God implies. We, we express a desire for his kingdom to, to be established and to be respected we, we know that God's rule over this earth is the right thing. We acknowledge that. And then, and then we move on to requests. And when I pray, this is sort of the pattern I, I go by, literally. I start off, before I bring my 
wish list, not my wish list, my prayer list, you know what I mean. I start off by worshiping the Trinity. I specifically try, I don't, I don't know if this is right, if it's wrong, somebody tell me after we're done, but I, I pray to the Father, acknowledge Him, I pray to the Son, and I pray to the Spirit. I worship them, and I acknowledge the things they do in my life and what they mean to me. And once I do that, then I do move on to my request. And that's following the outline that Christ lays out for, here, for us. Look at verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. Now, for you and me in the United States, this is almost, well, I don't know any of us have to really ever pray this. I have enough food in my freezer and cupboards to last me many days. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't pray this. You know, when Jesus was sent out to be tempted, to be tested, he says he fasted 40 days, and then there's the biggest understatement in the Bible. After 40 days, he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. He was hungry. And so Satan came to him and said, Jesus, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus replied to Satan that man does not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that we don't need physical bread, because obviously we do. What he was saying was this. The things of God are more important than the physical things that you and I can see and touch. That the spiritual is more important than the physical. Okay? He said, Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone. Implied in Christ's response to the tempter, to the devil, is the truth that God will, in his own time and in his own way, provide all that we need, both spiritual and physical. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us and what this prayer acknowledges is that God will provide for your physical needs. He has promised to. And we don't need to use Satan's or the world's schemes to provide for us food, clothing, shelter, employment, money. We don't need to lie and steal. and We don't need to follow the world's example to acquire those things. That our Father in heaven knows we need those things. He has promised to provide us those things. Give us, it says, our food day by day, or give us each day our daily bread is a, is a way of saying this. God, we know that we can depend upon you every day for these things. So when you pray, it is an admission when you say, God, give us what I need, provide for us, for my family and me, and thank you for when you do and how you do. But what that is is an admission of coming to God and admitting that we know God and we acknowledge that every good thing I have has come from you. James 1.17 says that. So when he says, give us this day our daily bread, for those people in that specific time, most people were paid daily, day by day by day. That was a very real, and I tell you what, in a lot of countries, in a lot of places in the world, this is a very real, like, okay, the rice and beans are gone today. Tomorrow would you give me my daily bread? But for us, I would encourage us, instead of necessarily saying, give us our, this day our daily bread, for me, I'd say help me to lose a little weight and thank you for the food that I have. 
You know what I mean? I, we, we're so blessed. But it's an acknowledgement of where these things come from. You know, as, as someone who was raised in agriculture, I'll tell you a little dirty secret that farmers and ranchers know. The, th- the, the line between feast and famine is razor thin. Most, you'll meet very few atheist farmers because they know. They know it doesn't take much to not have a crop. It doesn't take many failed crops before you start having a problem. We need to acknowledge who feeds us and who takes care of us. Turn, if you will, to back to, to Philippians chapter 4, forward to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, real well-known section. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Remember I told you that prayer is work. It's a, it's the, it's a great work. It is. It's, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes it's hard work. But I also said it's a great mystery. And prayer is a mystery. And what I mean by that is we know that God has a will. We know that God has a plan. Now, we're not robots and we have free will, but, it, but in the end, God's will will be done. So herein we see the mystery. God knows what we need even before we ask him. He even knows how he's going to supply our need, even before we ask him. God knows when you're anxious or fearful, okay? He knows what, though, he's going to do to meet your need in that fearful moment. But he still wants us, you and I, he still wants us to come to him in prayer and ask him, Even though he knows how he's going to respond, even though he knows what he's going to do, even though he knows what's going to happen in three days or 30 days or 30 years, God says, you come to me anyways and you pray to me and you ask me. He delights, he delights in our asking him for what we need or even want. It's like my grandkids. I love it when they ask Papa, will you please give me this? Instead of them trying to fight their way through it, it, it delights me. And I'm stubborn enough to let them struggle for a few minutes. Like, okay, you can figure it out. But when they ask, it delights me. I want to help them. I want to give them good things. And if it's like that way for me, as a sinful fa- a grandfather, what must it be like for our Heavenly Father? He knows what he's going to do, but he wants us to do it then why do we pray? If God already knows what's going to happen and he knows what he's going to do, well, for one thing, he tells us to pray, right? That's, that's enough. But there's a reason for prayer, obviously. Prayer helps you as a believer to not be anxious or fearful. There is something amazing that happens that when you come to God by faith and you give him a problem, 
something happens in the heart of a child of God, and you can gather and gain peace from this. Now, peace is not the absence of butterflies in the stomach. Uh, so if you go to the doctor and you get that diagnosis, peace is not the absence of being nervous. You're human, okay? It's, you, it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be stressed. You're going to be stressed. Faith, and then the peace that comes from it, is going to God and say, God, I don't like what I just got from my doctor. I'm scared, but I'm going to trust you. Please give me your peace. Now, that peace may last for one minute, one hour, one day, or one month. And you may have to go back to God continuously, and that's okay. Go to God, let him give you his peace. It's a moment-by-moment claiming it by faith, but it does work. And so when you come to God and you pour out your heart to him, you pour out your fears to him, um, there's a peace that can come upon you that is unexplainable. As he says, which surpasses all understanding. When you release your fears and your concerns and your agenda, and that may be the biggest part of it, your agenda, you can get peace. When you don't put all your eggs in the basket of this world and you realize that eternity is way much more important, you can get tremendous peace from what's happening now. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that is the only way for you and I to have real peace is to let go of the here and the now and embrace what is to come. I have a strong suspicion it's much easier for our brothers and sisters in North Korea, China, India, Sudan, to do this in us. I have a suspicion that a believer in North Korea is not putting a lot of stock in this world. We who have so much, and I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip, I'm just trying to say the truth, we who have so much, we tend to cling to what we have. I know I do. And God says, no, let that go. Let your plans go. Let your agenda go. And I can give you peace. And it does happen. And that peace is able to guard our thoughts and our minds, it says. And this is a mystery, but it's true. Going back to verse 4 of Luke. And I realize this service has to be shorter, so when I need to stop, somebody just say, Flint, stop. I'll wrap it up in a quick some way. And... Verse 4, he says, after acknowledging who it is that God gives us what we need and thanking him for it and asking him for those things, he says, and forgive us our sins. The next part of this prayer is an admission that we sin and fail God. This is a request for forgiveness of sin so that fellowship, excuse me, can be restored with our Father in heaven. When a person places their faith in Christ for salvation, all the sins that they have committed, are committing, will commit, are forgiven. They are forgiven. Uh, your, your legal standing before God is taken care of. From a legal standpoint, a believer is forgiven and will never come into condemnation for those sins. Amen? Okay, they were taken care of at the cross. As Jesus told his disciples in the upper room discourse when he washed their feet, 
Peter said, I'm not gonna, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part of me. He said, well, give me a bath. And Jesus said, no, you've had a bath. I'm just going to wash your feet. What was he saying there? He says, you've had a bath, which means forensically, legally, you've been forgiven of your sins and you are eternally forgiven, Peter. Your sins are no longer an issue between you and God. Your sins are no longer that issue. And got that by simply trusting in Christ as your Savior. But he said, you do need to wash your feet occasionally. And what Jesus was referring to was the truth that as we go through this life, our feet get dirty. We sin, right? We sin. We, We fall short. And when we do that, our fellowship with the Father is broken. Not a relationship. He's always your Father. He's your Father. But your fellowship with him gets injured broken, it's restrained, if you will, but you're still God's child. So when the believer, or what the believer needs to do is have his feet washed, meaning you need to confess the sin and have the fellowship restored. This is an acknowledging, this part of the prayer, and forgive us our sins. What this is is acknowledging our sin to God, confessing that sin to have fellowship with God restored. And it's an admission that every day we need our feet washed. I'm convinced that we do not, God does not convict us of all of our sin ever. Because if he did, it'd be overwhelming. So he says, you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is so gracious that he says, if I let you have Flint, if I let you have both barrels at the end of a day or in the middle of the day or whenever of your sin, you would, it would be overwhelming. So I'm going to convict you of this sin. And by the way, what is it? Well, conviction is, is not God condemning you. It's God saying, look, you fell short. Confess it. Turn from it. And have fellowship restored. And this part of the prayer is just an admission that I need that day by day by day. And then he goes on, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Notice that we're to acknowledge in this prayer our need to forgive others when they sin against us. You cannot be in fellowship with God the Father if you refuse to forgive someone who has sinned against you. We're commanded to forgive. If you don't forgive, it doesn't mean you lose your eternal salvation, okay? But you are out of fellowship with God, until you forgive that person who has wronged you. Now, does forgiving mean forgetting? That's impossible. I would tell you that that forgiving someone is very much like loving someone, an act of the will. I know we all want the warm fuzzies when about our spouses, but sometimes, as hard as it might be to believe, Denise just has to, by an act of will, say, I love that guy today. Shocking, but true. Vice versa, too. I think forgiveness towards somebody who has wronged us, even if they haven't asked for our forgiveness, is an act of the will done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it may be something you have to do continually. But you're out of fellowship with God if you refuse to forgive someone. And I'm just going to ask you guys, is there someone in your life right at this moment that comes to mind that I need to forgive? I've been hanging on to this bitterness. I've been refusing to give them 
forgiveness. And I would just challenge you and encourage you to forgive that person today and confess to God that I, I haven't been forgiving and I'm going to try by your grace to forgive and I ask you to forgiveness. forgive me for that. If you don't forgive someone, it's going to make you a very, very bitter person. A very bitter person. And I would suggest that the, that the point of this prayer at this point is to acknowledge to God, I know I need to truly forgive people. Help me to do that. I need to acknowledge the fact, God, that I need to forgive. God has forgiven us so much. How can we refuse to extend that same forgiveness? Well, they don't deserve it. <laughs> Neither do we. Neither do we. Then in verse 4, he says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is an admission of total dependence upon God to overcome temptation and sin. Now, this in no way is saying that God tempts us to sin. We know that God does not, cannot tempt us to sin. He never does. James 1.13 makes it very clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. All right? What does this mean, though? Well, you're saying don't leave me in temptation. This is an acknowledgement that we want and need God to help us to avoid temptation. God, give me the strength to not go where I shouldn't go. Further, it's asking us to deliver us from Satan's power, from Satan's influence. Now, God does allow us. He'll, he'll allow you to go through temptation. And he does it for reasons, to test our faithfulness, to, to strengthen our faith. He, he, he's, not gonna, he's not going to necessarily block every temptation. But I would suggest if Jesus says, you might want to pray, God, I'm, I really would like to not have temptation today. I don't, think I've, I've just thought, I don't think I've ever prayed this. <laughs> Maybe I should. There's an admission for you. It just hit me. I don't think I've ever asked that. Anyways, forgive me, Father. Um, I think it's important. Jesus says, look, you might want to ask. You should ask. Don't, don't let me go into temptation today, Father. I, I, I need to stay away from that. God never does tempt us for evil. Never. This is just an acknowledgement that we need his strength and his help in this area. So I want to close with two thoughts today. How am I doing on time? Okay? All right. Go back to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. Look at starting in verse 4. This is a psalm of David. It says, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. And David had all kinds of problems. And here he is recording these people are speaking against him and coming against him, and he hasn't done anything against to do this, to deserve this. 
In verse 4, he says, In return for my love, they are my accusers. I think everyone in this room can, to some extent, can relate to those words. I gave them good things, they returned bad things. I've loved them, they've hated me. I've spoke well of them, they've spoke ill of me. What do I do? Look at the phrase, but I give myself to protesting. I give myself to my lawyer. I give myself to my Facebook rant. I give myself to defending my reputation. I give myself to prayer. David understood something that you and I need to know and remember. Prayer is not just the last resort when all else fails. And prayer is not just a weak response by a weak person in a bad situation. Prayer is warfare. And it is powerful. And it is imploring the God who loves you and who is your father to help you. And David knew that when God's children pray, that our father hears and responds. And prayer, and this might be the most, reason, most important reason why we pray, prayer is not getting God to do what we want. There's no name it or claim it nonsense. Prayer is about getting our lives and our thoughts in line with what God wants. I'm going to be blunt this morning, at least for the United States, the Western world. We don't need more churches today. We don't need more Bible versions or even more Bible teachers. We don't even need more pastors and we don't even need more missionaries. We don't need a Republican president and a Republican Congress. Be nice. We don't need it. What we need is for God's people to pray. To pray. To do spiritual battle. I don't understand how it works. I don't. God has a plan. He will be carried out. But I will tell you that our, our prayers change things. I don't understand how it works. I can't explain it to you. I don't know how it works. But I know that when God's people pray, things change. Supernaturally change. Or maybe we change. I don't, probably both. We, listen, am I saying we should, we shouldn't have mission. You know what I'm saying. I hope you understand my heart here. What we need, we don't need more seminaries. We don't need more programs. We don't need more, more. We need prayer. We need to go to God humbly in prayer. 
We need to pray and then leave the results in God's hands. Which leads me to one last thought. Turn, if you would, to the book of Mark. This is, and I'm almost done. Mark chapter 10 and verse 18. Just one verse. Ten eighteen. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And I thought since today is Father's Day, I would touch on this one point. Since we go to God in prayer as our Father. Maybe you are here and you have or had a good dad. Or maybe you're here and you have or had a terrible dad. Or maybe you had somewhere in between. One thing I do know, none of us have had or have a perfect father, humanly speaking. And none of us are perfect fathers. None of us are perfect grandfathers. We make mistakes. We fall short. We break our promises. We don't follow through. We don't discipline correctly. And on and on and on and on and on. And if you had a, a dad where everything was performance-based, Sometimes going to the Father in heaven, well, it's harder. And you and I can fall into the thinking that God, our Father, is like God, or like God, like Dad on earth. And he's not. If you had a loving Father and you think, wow, he's nothing compared to your heavenly Father and his love for you. If you had a terrible Father, or somewhere in between. Your heavenly Father is so much different than that. I want to remind you of these two truths. God alone is perfectly good. He loves you more than any earthly father ever could. If you've trusted in Jesus for eternal life this morning, then God is your Father. He is your Father, and you can trust Him totally completely. So happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. And thank God all of us have a heavenly Father who's so amazing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you have provided a way for us to be in relationship with you through Christ. I thank you so much that you even want us to pray and talk to you, that you want to hear from us. You want to hear our stumbling and bumbling. You want us to be honest with you. We need you, God, and that's the truth. I thank you for providing so much for us, everything. We love you, and I just pray you bless these people as they go out this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.